0: Amen. Good morning, church. Greetings from Minnesota. Some of these men, we had our men's retreat a week ago, and a friend and I slept outside the the night we were there in a tent, and it was 25 degrees. So uh, Minnesota's a little different. It's uh, in flyover territory where some people here don't really care about the geography. You know, is it Idaho or Iowa. That's right next to Minnesota. Is what your pastor asked me, and I had to <laughs> help him a little bit with uh, geography. Don't worry about us, though; we'll be we'll be all right. But I bring you greetings from Jubilee. Uh, it was really a, a treat to be up at your men's retreat this weekend. We were up uh, about an hour northwest, up on a on a foggy hill. It was it was foggy uh, when we woke up Saturday morning, and it was foggy all day. And it was it was beautiful. It was. Uh, uh, the, the most beautiful thing, though, was to see the work of God in this body. I mean, really remarkable to see four elders stand before men being vulnerable, confessing their sin. Seeing others come and testify to not only God's grace in their life, but God's working to turn them from sin and patterns of sin to repentance and humility and obedience. Powerful. Really, really powerful. And it is a joy to open God's Word. As Nathan said, we've been in Ephesians. I love Ephesians. If you don't love Ephesians, after hearing it the last few weeks, I read through the messages you've been preaching through, and wow, they're really good. And this is a powerful, powerful book, and I'm excited to get into it. This weekend in your city is one more example that we live in a world and a nation where increasingly things feel chaotic. They feel tribal. Our side, their side, contention. Studies, study I just read said more and more, Republicans not only disagree with Democrats, they hate Democrats. Democrats increasingly don't just disagree with Republicans, they hate Republicans. Things feel more bitter, more toxic. And as we raise children, whether in our own families or just in this church family, Things that we've taken for granted are moving and shifting, and things feel more and more unsettled. And then in our lives, a precious loved one dies. Unexpected problems happen at work, in our families. We have disappointments with a relationship or a career. Finances and health sometimes hit us, and we just go, ah. It's easy on a Thursday afternoon if you been having a long week and working hard to wonder, God, what are you up to? Do you have a plan? I, I, I don't know that your plan is clear to me. I need light. There are days, if we're honest, that feel like we're up on that foggy mountain, struggling to see exactly which way is up. And so we come to the one place we know will give us the words of life. This word that is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Friends, from the beginning of history, our good God has been at work. He's been working out his good purposes to rescue and redeem, even as he's done in your lives and in this church. And this morning we get to see this in a really powerful way in this text. My prayer for you is that by the working of the Spirit through the Word, the fog would lift for our hearts in a new way. And we would see something new of God and His purposes and plans as it intersects with our lives, both as individuals and, and as a church. And that is, He does that. He would speak peace to our hearts which we need so much in the midst of what we face. Let's pray. Father, we pray now as we come to your word. You are God, we are not. You are strong, we are weak. You are truth and we're needing truth. We have parts of our heart that are unbelieving and we desperately want unbelief to get shoved out and believing faith to be shoved in. And we know that faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. So Father, would you do the miracle of putting into our hearts today a greater seeing of you? Because when we see you, everything changes. So one thing we ask, that we might behold your beauty from your word in these few minutes we have. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our text here this morning is Ephesians, as was read, through 14 As you've seen the last few weeks, it's coming at the end of this ginormous sentence from 3 to 14. These brothers have been laying out and unpacking this sentence, and it is so good and so rich. But, as Nathan said, I come to you from the future, so let me bring you news from the future, which is Ephesians 4, which you're going to get to in a while. but knowing the pace at which they preach it will be march maybe i don't know (laughs) so keep your finger in ephesians 1 and go with me to ephesians 4 and consider the first two words of ephesians 4 might have slightly different translations many of you probably using esv but but can we take a shot at reading the first two words of ephesians 4 what are they I, therefore, Paul's been writing and he says, I, therefore, all of you who are in Joey's class, learn study the Bible, know that when we see therefore, where I was asking, what is it there for, right? But right here in Ephesians 4, 1, we have a hinge. He's going to tell the children to draw a picture of a hinge, but they all vanished. So Cal, you can draw a picture of a hinge for us, right? Show it to the preacher after the sermon. It'll be great. We have this hinge. Three chapters, three chapters, and they turn right here with this therefore. Everything in one through three is setting up everything in four through six. One through three is this unfolding work of God. What has God been up to from the beginning of time? What has God been doing in the works of believers, in the lives of believers? And these words function like a hinge. I therefore... Next phrase, is Paul writing from the the Ritz-Carlton? Is he writing from the Grecian seaside? I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. I had the privilege of staying with one of your elders last night. We were talking a bit about suffering, suffering that may be in the future for believers. But this book comes out of some serious suffering. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Next part, get this, this, is really big. Urge you, restoration, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have received. One through three is all about calling. Here's what God has done. Here's one detail of this calling. Here's another part of this calling. Here's another reality of this calling. But as we're going through calling, which is what we're going to spend our time in in Ephesians 1, know that he's going to say, therefore, I want you to walk in a certain way. I want your lives to be transformed and changed because of this calling. So now picture scales with me think of those old scales all of you young folks don't ever remember seeing these scales probably but you got you got the two little dishes there there may be bronze hanging from the chains and you've seen pictures of those scales somewhere one side has to balance up the other side the the, the idea that paul has in mind when he says i urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called is our life reflects our calling. And our calling empowers our life. So in 4 through 6, it's coming. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about relationships. He's going to talk about children. He's going to talk about everything. How we speak, how we use money, how we get angry. And all of that is rooted in this calling. So you've got all of this weight that's building and building and building in this long sentence in 1, 2, and 3. And then he says, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. This is not a earning God's favor. This is like children who parents invest and invest and invest and invest and hope they walk in a certain way because of that investment. So we have a mighty call and it will result in, for God's people, a new and changed life. Believer, if you're in Christ today, you're being changed. Who you are today is not who you will be. If you're newly married and things are struggling, God is at work and it will get better. If you're single and you're struggling with whatever, God's at work and he's at work to change and transform you. Joey said a really good thing at the retreat. He said, marriage is not your savior. He said, Heterosexuality is not your savior. We're talking about some different ways sin affects us. and That's exactly right. Christ is our savior, and he has good purposes to change us. One more note here before we turn into our text in this overly long introduction. Turn to chapter 6. Think about why Paul... Such a long, long sentence in chapter 1, 3, and 14. Why so much praying that we would see God and know God and love God? Chapter 6, verse 12, "...we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." Then he's going to lay out the armor and say, therefore, take up God's armor so you can stand because life is hard and we are in a battle. And if you're a believer, you are in a battle. You're in a battle. And so what is said in Ephesians 1 is part of the weight that will carry us through the battle, part of the the, the strength, the, the, the building of muscle, spiritual muscle that will carry us through the battle. All right. Back to chapter one. You've heard this three and four three through fourteen. Here is is a long sentence, as we said. As, as we look at our text in particular, eleven through fourteen. I want you to see that it's broken up into a pair of realities. See, it begins in verse eleven with two words, which are what? In him, in him, and then verse twelve. Ends with the phrase, to the praise of his glory. Second pair, verse 13, begins with two words which are, in him. And then 14 ends with a phrase that says, to the praise of his glory. So 11 begins in him, then to the praise of his glory. 13, in him to the praise of his glory. So we've got two pairs here. That's kind of an outline for what's happening in our text. In this powerful pair, we want to see three things that God is up to. A people, a purpose, and a promise. A people, a purpose, and a promise. First one we see in both of these pairs, a people. God is up to calling a people to himself. This idea that God is calling a people to himself is one of the most powerful realities in the Bible, and it is rooted, as we've seen, in this phrase that begins, in him. right? In him. Your your pastor, Joey, just got off sabbatical and he said he spent the entire time studying one reality. Union with Christ. And and most of us, as, as younger believers at least, when I heard union with Christ, I yawned. I was like, I don't know what that is. It doesn't seem important. It's no big deal. The Apostle Paul says, this is a really big deal. A huge deal. How do we know this? Because if you read 3 through 14, as you've heard in these last weeks, it's everywhere. In him, in him, in him, in him, in him. Every verse has in him. Why? Because we need to know that we are not alone. When life is hard, we need to know that we are not alone. And we need to know that the Holy God of the universe, when he looks at us, he doesn't just see us alone in our sin. But he sees us welded together, taped, glued, attached together with his son. And Paul knows this is so important that he repeats it and he repeats it and he repeats it. How in the world could Paul go to a city like Ephesus? No believers. And say, you know what, I'm just going to start preaching. See what happens. Ephesus was a big city. It was like San Francisco. It's on the West Coast. It's thriving. There's trade. There's there's tourism. One of the wonders of the world. You've you've heard this, but how does Paul go? Because it's not him alone. But he begins in him, and then the next word is now where we, we, it's really important. You've heard about in him in the last few weeks. In him, what's the next word? We. We. And here's where we get the idea of a people. In him, we. Not just in him, me. It's not just addressing me as an individual. It's not just addressing you as an individual. It's addressing we as a people. If you are in Christ, you are part of this people. We. So again, we live in this day of red and blue. Black and white. City. Rural. American, international. We have these divisions. And we come into a church and some of those divisions are possible, potential. But Paul was coming with a message that God was calling for himself a people. And the people that he was calling was something new. Because up to this time, until a few years before this, God's people had always been one people. The Jewish people. In one place. Israel. It wasn't, wasn't a worldwide thing. And now, Paul comes to this great, big, beautiful Gentile city. And he says, in him we. And it's powerful. God He is calling forth a people. Throughout this book, he's going to talk about this people that he's calling forth, He's going to call it a mystery. He's going to unfold this mystery. But the mystery is that God is calling for himself people from all of those countries your brother prayed for. He's calling people from Ghana, from Romania, from Moldova, from China, in this room. He called one of our elders two months ago to go to the capital city of Cameroon to plant a church. Why? Because he's calling the nations to himself. So in Christ, we, who's we? The new people of God. We have obtained an inheritance. We have been predestined. We have been predestined according to the purpose of Him, the Father who works all things according to the counsel of His will. We, we, we. Look at 3 through 14 with me for a moment. Some of you might, may have seen this. Many of you, if you're like me, you missed it. Because you're Americans. And Americans are all about individuality. Me, myself, and I. Right? We think about our relationship as a personal relationship with Jesus. Which it is. It's just not only that. And I want you to look for one thing in this sentence. And that is the language of a people. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 5, he predestined us for adoption as Sons and daughters, plural. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. Now, verse 11, in him we. Paul is talking to a people. God is calling a people. And he's saying, this is for a group of people, a new people that God is forming. Verse 11, it's we. In verse 13, it is you. Why the shift? Why does he speak to we? And then why does he speak to you? We refers to the Jewish people. Paul is a Jew. He's coming as a Jew. We were the people of God. But now he comes and says, God also has mercy, Ephesians, on you, you Gentiles which is good news for many of us in this room. There may be a few of Jewish background here, but almost all of us are Gentiles, right? And so the you are us. But the good news and the mystery that that Paul's unfolding for us is that the you are now the we. We're one new people. And he's going to unpack that throughout the book. And this is good news. Really good news. We are a new people in chapter 4, he's going to say, There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and we get to be part of this. So I was thinking about that a couple of weeks ago. We're part of one body. I just started thinking about this and going, This is crazy. This is crazy. Like the nations are going to be gathered together, God's people and we're going to be part of this family forever, no end. No sin, no politics, no elections, no appointments, no hearings, forever. Are you serious? People from every language, every country. And he's saying, that's who we are. Are you kidding me? The God who made heaven and earth is calling us. He says, I am inviting you to be part of this. That's amazing. That's what we means. And it is remarkable. So, first, we see here, he's calling a people. Second, we see here that he's calling us for a purpose. A purpose, and and, and this language of purpose is all over this sentence. You you saw it last week. We see it this week. It's just this language of purpose all over. Verse 11, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of the Father who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Purpose. Predestined. Will. Plan. Plan. These, these words are all, are all over the place. God has a plan. He has a purpose, and this is good, and and this is hard. We heard several weeks ago that God chose His people when. Yeah. So so where would we put that in our in our Bible's chronology? Right, right here, right before the foundation of the world, He chose us in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. I adopt you to be my son. Crazy, what? And yet, these things to to our human hearts and minds are are hard. Language that says God predestines those who will be his is hard. And, And I know you've been wrestling with that. But I just want to encourage you. To continue to wrestle and to know that wrestling with, with big truths of the Bible is okay. God's word is our authority and so we hide ourselves underneath it. Your pastors are not the ultimate authority. Your pastors teach this. This word is our authority. So they can correct one another. And we can correct one another but our authority is here. But when we read something that's hard and we say I don't get it or I don't like it. We wrestle. We think. We say, God, what are you up to? A couple of weeks ago, I was preaching and I I just mentioned in an aside that I've learned in parenting teenagers. We have five teenagers. Please pray for us. They're they're great. Pray for them, too, because they need much grace with imperfect parents. But I I just made a side. I said, I've learned that when teenagers, the the time to have serious conversations with your teenagers. Some of you remember this because you weren't teenagers very long ago. But the the time to have serious conversations with your teenagers is when they want to have those conversations. So if I say like 4 p.m., we're talking about the doctrine of election. All right, lay out three powerful points. What do you think about that? I don't know. (laughs) Seriously? No, we've got an hour. We've got to get through this. It doesn't work, right? So I said... You know, if your kids come in late at night, that's often when it happens. might be 11.30, that's when you talk to them. One of my kids was sick that morning. I'm in bed. I like to go to bed early. I'm in bed, 10 o'clock, 11.30. Hey, Dad, can we talk? Nope, I'm going to bed. Yes, let's talk. My son comes in, he said, man, I've just been thinking about predestination." been thinking about what it means, like that God chooses some and he doesn't choose everybody. Why doesn't God choose everybody? Why does he choose some and why did he choose me? I was like, right on. Let's talk. I said, so good to wrestle and struggle. The person I get concerned about is the person, like, oh, yeah, I believe, that I, I, I got it. No, like these are big weighty questions because God The the infinite, eternal God is unfolding his purpose for us. This is not just a little pill we swallow with a little cup of water. This is powerful good news. But it comes at our man-centered thinking, and it hits in odd directions. Because all of us are born with ourselves at the center of the universe. And I decide what's right. And I decide what's good and bad. And I decide what God should do. And what God should do, clearly, is save everybody. Right? That's how we're born. And as we read this book, God gets bigger and bigger and bigger in our vision. My four-year-old daughter asked me the other day, Dad, how big are stars? They're really big. (laughs) That was the technical answer. (laughs) How, How do you explain how big they are to her? It's going to be a process for her to grasp the immensity of how big stars are. It's a process for us as we're working through this to understand the purpose the plan that God has and so we must wrestle with this text you must read these realities if you know yourself today to be a sinner if you trusted in Jesus that he is a great savior it is because of the purpose and the plan of God because he's been unfolding these things to you according to the counsel of his will and you asked can God do that? To which God says, I'm God. Can an author change a character in their book? Can they change a line in a script? Can a painter decide to use a different color or adjust a brushstroke? We know that they can. And friends, God is God, the God who is the source of your life rules and works and we have obtained an inheritance according to the purpose of God we did not earn it we did not deserve it but our God is so gracious that he set his love on us we who are enemies and rebels in him we have obtained an inheritance we who have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So someone will say, so we don't need to share the gospel. We don't need to go to the nations. Remember who's writing this? The guy who went from town to town to town. His first missionary journey, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, it's preaching the gospel in Lystra. The people take up stones, stone him to death, leave him for dead. He gets up the next day, goes to Derby, the fourth town. Like this this guy was about it. And he's the one who, under the inspiration of God, is telling us about God's purpose and plan. We preach the gospel because we know God has people in Cameroon. And in Tinley Town. And at American University. And on Capitol Hill. We preach the gospel in Anacostia knowing God is at work. Verse 12. What's the reason? What's the so that for this purpose? God's doing this great work for us. What's the response? What's the so that? Look at verse 12. So that we. Again, he's talking first about the Jews, and he's going to repeat it in the second paragraph. But we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. The fact that we were made alive when we were dead, that we weren't a people, and now we are a people were chosen. We weren't part of a family. We've been brought into the family. All of those things result in the praise of His glory. What can weak, frail humans give to omnipotent God? Praise. Praise. What you've just done here in singing praise to God is entirely appropriate and altogether too rare. Because everybody else in this city has life and breath and beating hearts only because God gave it to them. And they're neither acknowledging Him or honoring Him or thanking Him. But when we understand reality, then we say, Oh, my God, we praise you. We honor you. We glorify you. We, according to your plan and purpose, so good, so good. Verse 13, the second pair. Let's see these things again and, and just see a little bit more. Verse 13, in him that is in Christ, you also, we Jews, you also Gentiles, all part of one new people. God's unfolding that. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So the people, God's unfolding a a purpose. And now the, the last P is just that he has a promise for us. A promise for us. Remember when Jesus left, he said, I'm not leaving you alone, but I'm going to give you someone. I'm going to give you the helper. He promised us a helper. A helper who would help us understand this word. A helper who would make much of Christ. He promised the Holy Spirit of God. And this was promised in the Old Testament as well. The Spirit is coming. God is going to send his Spirit. And now Paul says, in this great city of Ephesus, he says, this promise is a reality. In your life. And he would say it here. Restoration church. The promise of God. Is now present in you. So look at verse. Uh, 13 into 14 here. When you believed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, get the word that he uses. What's what's the verb? What's the action word? You were what with the Holy Spirit? The promised Holy Spirit? You were sealed. All right, so we got to think about that. That's a word that's got a lot of implication. It's really, really important. There's, There's three ways to think about what does it mean to be sealed. Number one, to be sealed is to be marked as authentic or genuine. When you travel, you have a passport. The passport of whatever country is marked with a seal. Currency from this country or other countries marked with a seal shown to be authentic. If you are a believer in Christ, you have been sealed, marked authentic and genuine by the Holy Spirit. So he says, there's a promise and you've received it. You have the promised promise. Holy Spirit of God. You were sealed with this promise. We've seen the work of the Father in this sentence. We've seen the work of Christ all over here. And now he says, see the work of the Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit. He has sealed you. He has marked you if you are in Christ as one who is genuine. What does this mean that he marks us as genuine? Well, the Spirit indwells us. What I was glimpsing at the men's retreat We're men who are sealed with the Holy Spirit. How do you know that? Because they were doing things you don't normally do. Like confess sin. That's what the Spirit does. He convicts us of sin. And then He empowers us to put sin to death. And He pushes out the fruit of the flesh. Our old anger and quick-temperedness. Our immorality and lust and our greed. He doesn't do it all at once. But then He begins to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience. As you, as you smell those things in people, you're smelling the seal of the Spirit on genuine believers' lives. The seal of the Spirit is not one who says, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit points to Christ. The Holy Spirit illumines the Word and the Holy Spirit works in our lives to transform us. The seal of the Holy Spirit is is the mark of the genuine church and God's genuine people. But secondly, a seal also marks something as property. I've got some book lovers here. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but does anybody have one of those seals where you put the corner of the book in, you stamp it, and it says property of Nathan Knight or whoever? True talk. Anybody? Oh, let's see. So I was one of those folks, right? Hey, you wanna read this book? It's really my favorite. Just notice on page two that it's mine, and if you don't return it, I will hate you forever. All right. <laughs> Several of my friends have been getting these, and it's really irritating when their books sit on my shelf and I know that they're sealed with their name and I can't act like I don't know whose they are. I actually kind of want one, but um yeah. A seal marks something as someone's property. You see, he's saying here, we have an inheritance. You you heard about that inheritance in in 1 Peter. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's it's reserved in heaven for you. It, It won't fade away ever. An inheritance that's awesome. But on the flip side, we, this new people, this body, this family, this household of God, all things Ephesians calls us, We are his inheritance. So there's a two-way direction here that that I give to my children an inheritance and they are in fact a, a treasure, a legacy for me, right? And so he says, you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You've been marked as someone who belongs to God. If you if you wrestle with that and you say, I don't know if I'm a believer, know that part of what the, the seal of the Holy Spirit does according to Romans 8.16 is the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. It says also there in Romans 8 that we don't have the spirit of slavery that leads us back into fear, to think God's some kind of tyrant that wants us to work, work, work but we have the spirit of adoption that that, that is stirring up in our heart to cry, Father, Abba, Daddy, you do love me. And I love you. And it's relationship of loved daughter to loved father. And that's the work of the spirit. You're mine. Not in some kind of cruel way at all, but in the most beautiful, secure, loving way. If you're in Christ today, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He says, you're mine. You're my daughter, part of my family forever. Amazing. Amazing. One more aspect of of what it means to be sealed. and We see it fleshed out in verse 14. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Has anybody ever come up to you and told you that they want to buy something of yours? Maybe it's a used car. Thank you. Everybody else can participate too if you want. It might be a used car. It might be a house. It might be something kind of expensive at a, at a sale you're having. And we all know that people talk, right? Like, oh yeah, I want to buy that house. Okay, great. Well, never see you again. But we know when someone pulls out their their wallet and starts throwing down cash, saying, hold this for me. I am coming back for this. Here's $1,000. That's a different deal when someone's buying a $2,000 car, right? They're, They're serious. They mean it. What does he say here? He says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So if you are in Christ and you've been adopted, we have seven children. Nathan mentioned that. Uh, Our first son we adopted right a a year after we were married. And and I was really concerned that people were really clear that there were not two tiers at all in our family. So my name is John. My last name is Erickson. Then I have my grandfather's middle names. John Alvin Durward Erickson, kind of weird middle names, my grandfather's names. When my first son came, I told my wife, babe, I don't want to be that guy that's like John Jr., but I said, I really want him to know that he's my firstborn son. So I want to give him his grandfather's names like I have. So my son, oldest son is Johnny, John Alvin Rodney Erickson. Like I want him to know he's my son. And a pastor friend of mine came up to me and he said, you know, you have adopted children, you have biological children. He said, I, I noticed you treat them the same. I was like, is that, a th- <laughs> is that a thing? Like people do that? And he said, yeah, I was a social worker for years and I rarely saw that. I was like, that's weird. But our God doesn't have like st- classes of children there's only children that have been adopted and those that have been adopted, they receive the inheritance. Like there's not 10% for you, 90% over there. We receive the inheritance. And the guarantee of that inheritance is that we have the Holy Spirit. A down payment. God, am I really yours? Will I really be yours forever? Can I really trust you? His answer is you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. I'm at work convicting you of sin. I'm at work bringing new life. I'm at work growing you in holiness. I'm at work revealing Jesus to you. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. And friends, this is really good news when life is really hard. Because when we need, we need hope when things get the hardest. Right? Some of you might have been Capitol fans and really excited when your hockey team won the Stanley Cup. I don't know. Maybe nobody. But in Minnesota, we never win. We need hope, right? (laughs) Life's hard. We never win anything. It's kind of sad. But it's good because we're not misplacing our hope in anything. Like sports, because they're never even remotely good. But if you go to Romans 8, It unpacks this idea a little bit here as as we come to the end of an inheritance and and, and thinking about what does this mean? Romans 8.22 says this, talking about the reality that we're sons and daughters, talking about that we're we're waiting for the, the fullness of our adoption. Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, you know pains of childbirth are serious, right? Not a good time to read the paper when your wife's in the pains of childbirth. FYI. Not a good time for strange smelling food. Not a good time to say, Babe, hey, no big deal, right? Those are None of those things are good ideas at all because it's awful, it's painful. But very seriously, what Romans 8.22 is saying, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Why are things so hard? Why are things so shaky? Why is life difficult? Because the world is in the pains of childbirth until now. The good news is, for a woman going through childbirth is, it will end. And there's a good result at the end. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the guarantee of the Spirit, the down payment of the Spirit, we are groaning. If you come in this morning and you say, why am I groaning? Why am I just... Oh, life is hard. This is the way that it is. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait for something. We wait eagerly for something. What is the thing we're eagerly waiting for? Our adoption as sons and daughters. Daddy, come home. Daddy, bring me home. Mama, come. We have a family in our church. That's been waiting and waiting to adopt. They've just been matched with this four year old boy. He knows it, they know it, they've got pictures, and all they're doing is waiting. I'm not sure exactly what that moment's going to be like when the waiting ends, but oh, 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 I would love to see that moment. Because I know there's going to be all kind of tears and hugs and kisses and relief and overwhelming emotions, right? And so it is for us. The thing you're longing for is that. Because this is not all that there is. This is good. But it's also hard when we're real with one another. We are groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. He continues there in Romans 8, For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he has seen. So we're hoping for something. We're waiting for something. Now, go up a couple verses in Romans 8 there and consider one more thing. Romans 8 verse 18. Paul, this one who has been shipwrecked, is imprisoned, has been stoned, has been suffered in so many ways. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. Two weeks ago, Saturday morning, we're sitting at breakfast. My wife starts quoting this text to our friends who have suffered so much. Just with tears in her eyes says, it's not saying our sufferings are small. Some of you in this room are going through unimaginably hard things and will go through unimaginably hard things. She said what he's saying is the glory is so spectacularly large. I don't consider all of my sufferings, all of our sufferings, Paul says, are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Even as we suffer persecution, even as we lose a job because of our conviction. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation all of us are waiting until you come, the curtains open, and Son of God, Daughter of God, with the Father, forever, one body. That's to come. That's to come. The Spirit is our down payment. The Spirit is our guarantee. And all of it, as he ends here in Ephesians 1.14, all of it is to the praise of his glory. It's his idea. It's his plan. Christ is the one that has accomplished it. The spirit applies it to us and, and, and we receive. We receive and we say, praise God. Praise God. That's the right response. We're all made to praise things. And he is the one worthy of our praise. So Restoration. He has called you as a people to be a people living in a certain way together, walking in a manner worthy of the call to which he's called you to. And four is going to unpack. That means walking in humility, walking in gentleness, bearing with one another, even your annoying habits, pursuing the unity of the spirit in your home and in this body, the bond of peace. And God is unfolding His purpose. When so much is moving and shifting and seems uncertain around us, God's purpose remains. and God's plan will not be thwarted. God is accomplishing. Whether I die or you die, doesn't matter. God is accomplishing His purpose. And He will not stop until it is complete. And as we receive His kindness, He gets all the glory. He gets all the praise. He gets all the honor. So He's called us to be a people. He's called us to this purpose. And He has called us with a promise. The promise of His Holy Spirit. So the old hymn writer wrote this hymn. Let's read the first verse. Tweak it with a little tweak that you'll understand. And can it be that we should gain an interest in the savior's blood died he for us who caused his pain for we who are in christ who him to death pursued amazing love how can it be that thou my god should die for me for us